Welcome to the Paragold Podcast. This is Jared Pitney, and today I am joined by Donis Hamilton. Donis, thanks so much for coming on. My pleasure. So, tell me a little bit about you. I, you're one of these guys, you're kind of like um, uh, Bob Branch. I've had several people who have reached out to me and been like, you got to get Donis on, you got to get Donis on, the mayor, uh, other people. So, uh, I've heard a lot about you, but I've never had a chance to let you sit down and have a conversation. So, if you can, let's just start and tell me kind of where you came from. Were you were you born here in Paragould? No, I'm I'm a native of Russellville. My I was born and raised in Russellville. Graduated from high school, went through the public school system, and graduated in 1961. Uh, while I was still in high school, I joined the National Guard, and uh, realized I'd have a six month period of active duty training. So uh, I immediately went out of high school into my first semester of college in summer school at Arkansas Tech, which was then known as Arkansas Polytechnic College. It wasn't Arkansas Tech University at the time. In any event, I got a, oh, half of a, well, I got six hours of credit and uh, and then had to go to active duty and uh, and. Then when I got out of active duty training, my father, who uh, had been a lot of things, he'd been a real estate agent, insurance agency, worked in a bank, all this, that, and the other, but uh, had gone to work for the Federal Housing Administration in Little Rock in 1948. And so my whole growing up lifetime, uh, Dad would leave home and either – Late, late on Sunday afternoon or at 4 o'clock in the morning on Monday morning and be gone then the whole week and then get back Friday night. And uh, he had our only car, (laughs) so we did a lot of walking. Uh, But in any event, uh, while I was away in the Army, Mother and Dad moved to Little Rock. I was the third of four children, and... My younger sister was still living at home, but she moved with them to Little Rock. And when I got back, well, then I went back to Arkansas Tech. I lived in the dormitories there. Graduated in in, uh, uh, in May of 1965. What did you get a degree in? I had a Bachelor of Arts degree with major emphasis in history, political science, so did you know when you graduated you wanted to go into law, I'm guessing? I knew by the time I graduated from college that I thought that's probably what I needed to do. I did. I was lucky enough to do my practice teaching under a wonderful woman by the name of Irene Barnwell at Northside High, what's now Northside High School in Fort Smith. She was a dynamite teacher. And, uh, and uh, we got... To the end of our student teaching uh, period, six weeks or something like that, and she said, uh, Donna's what do you really want to do in life? <laughs> Which is a nice way of saying, I really wasn't the best history teacher in the world. And uh, so I told her, I was thinking about going to law school, and she said, I recommend you do that. And then I got married uh, just before I graduated from uh, undergraduate school to Bonnie, and uh, we decided to try to go to law school, and so we did apply and were accepted 
to Fayetteville and went to law school that fall of 1965. What uh, what did you say the teacher's name again? That was Ms. Irene Barnwell. Barnwell. What made her a dynamite, just fantastic teacher? Because you said that with conviction. So what do you th- what comes to mind when you think of someone who's well, a good teacher like her? Irene Barnwell was, first of all, very bright, but she had been teaching for a long time. She was a pretty strict disciplinarian. You didn't fool around in Ms. Barnwell's class, and and yet she had a million, it seemed like, tricks and games and things mm. to do with the students that taught them something about history and uh, games. You know, uh, we'd have history bees instead of spelling bees mm. and things like that. Mm-hmm. And she was just wonderful, just mm. wonderful. Mm. She made learning fun. So you go off to law school. You said it was 65? Yes, in fall of 65. In 65. Okay. And where did you say you went to law school? I went to law school at the University of Arkansas at Fayetteville. Okay. All right. And so you go through there, uh, I guess, or we, how long? How long? I don't even know how long law school is. Normally, it's a three-year program. Uh, law school for me was a meat hunt. I wasn't there to drink beer and chase women and go to ball games. I was there to get an education and get out and go to work because we were starving. I mean, we didn't have much. <laughs> we were showing sure up poor. No, <laughs> we didn't have anything except what we made. And uh, so I worked two and sometimes three jobs, uh, part-time jobs, and Bonnie worked part-time too. And then, well, originally she worked full-time, then she – She's a year younger than I am, and so she did not have her degree, and we decided it was necessary for her to get a degree. And so she, my second year in law school, she also went and finished her senior year in, uh, in, uh, uh, at Fayetteville and got her degree that May or June, the following June. And where is she and from originally? Bonnie was born and raised in Little Rock. In Little Rock, okay. Yeah, she was so a, neither one of you are from Perigold then? No, 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 uh-uh. So how did y'all eventually end up here? <laughs> well, that's a, it's it's a humorous story to me. It might not be to someone else. <laughs> I was actually on the twenty seventh day of January. See, I we were talking about how long it takes to get out. I went summer and winter, took extra, extra classes, so I finished in two and a half rather than three years. So I got out what would be midterm, and now those days the term ended actually ended the second week in January. And so I graduated from law school on the 27th day of January, 1968. I happened to, we, Bonnie and I had been over here to interview with the law firm then known as Curse Kathy and Brown. And we interviewed a whole bunch of other places too, Little Rock, Pine Bluff. Uh, We went back and investigated the possibility of going solo in Russellville. And uh, we're considering a lot of opportunities. And, um, we had, we had been over here and really liked Paragould. I'd never been to Paragould, I remembered, and I know Bonnie hadn't either. And we really liked the firm, liked the people, were impressed with the town. What impressed you about the town then at that point? What, do you remember like your sure, first Sure, I can give you the exact thing. Well, there were a lot of things, but the thing that started it off impressing us, we got here early the morning we came over for an interview, and uh, – me being me, we got here early and drove around a little <laughs> to see where we were. And we drove 
north on Pruitt Street, got on to Pruitt Street down here on off of Main Street, drove by the Samuel Gin mm-hmm. and turned left. I was thinking Paragu would be uh, a typical Delta town with big oak trees, and a couple of uh, gins on each end of Main Street, and a, a dusty old Main Street with awnings out in front and people sitting on benches out in front of them, and a mm-hmm. classic southern Delta town, and it was not. Mm. And and uh, so anyhow, we turned on, and sure enough, it did have a gin on each end of the street. It had the Samuel's gin on the south end and had the Burdick gin on the north end. But uh, we turned up the street, and it was clean. There weren't any of the typical things that you would see. There were bustling activity. The merchants were getting out, getting things ready to go in the morning. Mm. We drove past the intersection of Emerson and Pruitt Street, and Many of you remember Arnold's jewelry store. Mm-hmm. Majors Arnold was the owner and proprietor of Arnold's jewelry store. And right next door to him was a shoe store called the Family Shoe the Store. The Jacksons? The Jacksons owned yeah. that. And Mr. Jackson and Majors Arnold had been sweeping the front of their building and sweeping the gutter and the street right there in front of their, office, uh, their businesses. Mm-hmm. And they were standing there, leaning on their brooms, talking to one another. Mm. Now, for anybody who's known Perigo very long at that era would know that that's exactly what they did every morning. Mm-hmm. And, 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 and that impressed me. The, the, clean, the streets were clean, free of litter. Uh, people were getting prepared for the day. It was fairly early in the morning. And, and and that impressed me. It also impressed me that uh, Pergo was not a delta town in the classic sense and that it had hills, mm-hmm. not mountains like I was used to, but it had hills. <laughs> and it was not a swampy-looking place. Mm-hmm. Uh, that impressed me. And then we met the law f- people in the law firm, which was Marsh, Kathy, Gerald Brown, and Ray Goodwin, and really liked them. Very impressed with that, and they were an impressive group of lawyers. And uh, anyhow, we liked a lot. Back to my original story now. Mm-hmm. I'm going to actually come back. Uh, I had interviewed with them. We had not had any offers and hadn't had any real, uh, real live uh, uh, consideration, uh, things to consider, offer to consider. And I was at graduation. Bonnie was not feeling well that day, and for those of us who had already gone through a graduation a few times, graduation was no big deal. We didn't give two hoots and hades about going to graduation. We didn't care about it. We wanted a degree and wanted out. In those days, in order to get your degree, you had to walk across the stage, and the dean had to hand it to you. That's where you got your degree. Mm. In any event, I was there, my robe and all that business, and uh, got my degree and uh, walked home. It was held in the Barnhill Fieldhouse, the old Barnhill Fieldhouse. And we lived in the, in the uh, married student housing, which is, was at that time, it's no longer there, at the south end of, uh, oh, it'd be south of uh, Razorback Stadium by about a block, block and a half, something like that. I just walked home. And I walked in and... and uh, Bonnie said, um, uh, after we got through with all the 
about the graduation and this, that, and the other. So Gerald Brown called. Mm. Really? Yeah. And uh, he wants you to call. Okay, well, I called. And Gerald offered me a job. And and I told him, I said, well, you know, I, I need to talk to the boss about all this. And we'll, we, we hadn't really had a chance to consider it and blah, blah, this, blah, blah, that. And uh, so we hung up, and I turned to Bonnie, and I said, uh, you know, uh, I was Gerald Brown, told her what the story was. And uh, and I said, what do you want to do? He said, well, what do you think? I know I said, what do you think? And she said, well, we liked it the best, and, and uh, you do what you want to do, but there's one of those things where uh, it appeared to us that it met all of our criteria, and we liked the community and liked the town. And she said, I said, well, I think we ought to take it. She said, I do too. So I called him back. This wasn't 15 minutes later. I called him back and uh, said, talk to the boss and this, that, and the other, and said, we think we'd like to do that. And uh, I asked him, when do you want us to go to work? He said, oh, just whenever you can get all your arrangements made and get things settled down. He said, anytime, be all right. And I said, well, how about tomorrow morning? <laughs> and so I literally, I graduated on the 27th of January, 1968, and my first day at the law firm of Curse Kathy and Brown was the 28th wow. day. Wow. So what did, y'all, did y'all not have anything to pack up, or did y'all just? Oh, yeah. I drove our only car. Uh, which was a 1959 Chevrolet, Biscayne, uh, about 100,000 miles on it. But in any event, I drove it over here, and then Mr. Kathy uh, offered to let me sp- uh, stay in his home until okay. we could get situated. And so later on then, uh, I went back and we hauled our, our all our earthly goods at the time in a medium-sized U-Haul trailer behind that 59 Chevrolet back over here. <laughs> and y'all were how old at the time? I was 25 and Bonnie was 24. Wow. Did you did you think it was a temporary move, like it was uh, almost like a stepping oh, stone? No. We don't do th- – it's not our style to do things halfway. We try to think ahead, and if it's what we feel like we do, when we make a commitment, we wanna, we're in there whole hog. mm how long did it take you before you begin to get involved, and how did that happen? Because there's a lot of people who's lived here their whole lives, and and outside of maybe their own family, they've they've uh, they've not gotten just real involved in the city. They've had the opportunity, maybe, or maybe they've had the opportunity just to take advantage of it. You've been able to help um, with with several like just big projects in in, in Paragon. I know one of them is the bridge. Um, between uh, Arkansas and Missouri that connects there on 412 and then the airport. Uh, I mean, I don't know what all you've done there, but I've heard you had a, a lot to do with Kirk Field. So tell me kind of how did that happen? How did you go from this kind of mid-20s, I'd almost say kid, right, young adult who moved here, doesn't really know anybody in the city, to being as well-known as involved as you actually have been all these years? There are multiple reasons, of course, for everybody. I was lucky in that the community that uh, that we lived in and the people who are our clients and friends of my partners uh, just took us in. Uh, and it was a very welcoming, warm uh, introduction. 
also Mr. Kathy and Mr. Brown and Ray Goodwin were also uh, community-minded people. And uh, they felt that it was necessary to get involved in community activities. Mm. And uh, so I joined the Kiwanis Club. They were all members. Gerald had been a Kiwanian. He wasn't when I got there, but he had been a Kiwanian. Ray and Morris had been Rotarians. And so they were involved in that. There are two or three good reasons for that. First of all, you get to meet a lot of people. But more importantly, from the standpoint of the economics of law practice, people get to know you and might therefore utilize your services. Uh, also, uh, uh, they were very uh, interested and involved in bar activities. Mr. Kathy, <coughs> excuse me. <coughs> I'm sorry. Excuse That's me. That's okay. You're more welcome to grab uh, your water there if you want it. Mr. Kathy had uh, had just finished his year as president of the Arkansas Bar Association, uh, which is uh, one of the leading reasons why I wound up involved with him because he was friends with the dean. The dean uh, gave them my name as being one that they might want to talk to. But in any event, um, uh, they were involved in bar activities as well, and I was, and they encouraged that. And so as a result of that, well, I got involved in community activities of various types, and one thing led to another. And and as you know, if you're uh, very involved and you try hard, then those opportunities open additional opportunities for service. And sure. You get wound up in things. Yeah. What? So tell me about your involvement with the airport. Um uh, yeah, I'd like to hear about that. All right. I'd always been in, uh, interested in aviation. As a matter of fact, somehow or another, we scraped up enough money for me to get three flying lessons in the fall of 1967 at Drake Field in Fayetteville, which were the first three flying lessons that I obtained. I, I, I was always just really knocked out with aviation, everything about flying. Mm. In any event, we got uh, the first three lessons there. Then I came, we moved to Paragould, and then I started taking flying lessons from Bill Fulkerson. Uh, many of you may know that Bill was the father of uh, Andy Fulkerson, who's a lawyer and a judge here, and and the grandfather of John Fulkerson, who's the principal at one of the grade schools here mm-hmm. now. Yeah, Woodrow. And and uh, anyhow, Bill was a, a great instructor, and I and I ultimately soloed and and then obtained my license here, flying off of Kirk Field, and finding the type of airport and so forth was important. One of our important considerations in deciding where to move. One day, the uh, secretary calls and said, uh, "Bill Trice and Earl Kirk are out here wanting to see you." Okay, so I ushered them back. Bill had a Bill Trice had a box, a bunch of stuff in the box, and uh, he set it down on my desk. And uh, Earl said, uh, "Don's Bill wants to get off the commission, and the mayor has appointed you on the commission, and you're going to be the secretary." Here's the records. <laughs> Literally, that's the oh, wow. way it happened. <laughs> 
That was 1970. I'm guessing at that point it wasn't quite as big as it is now. Is that right? The runway was... Oh, the airport itself was the same acreage. It hasn't changed much. Okay. The We have added a little parcel of ground on the north end uh, where the runway now ends at Loggy Creek and the and the property immediately north across Loggy Creek out to the bypass uh, we acquired. But the rest of it is all the original uh, grounds of the original airport. Okay. And is it primarily, like, you know, I went to, some of my best memories as a kid was going with my dad to watch uh, people take off in their planes. There used to be a, um, a soda machine out there, and I'd get a grape soda out of it, if I, if I remember correctly. And I'd sit there with my dad, and we'd watch airplanes uh, take off and land on a Saturday morning. Outside of that, I know very little about Kirk Field. I'm ashamed to mention that. So, like, what is it primarily used for? I mean, is it mainly, like, just recreational, like people like you who just enjoy flying and they just want a place to park their plane? Is there some commercial elements to it, business? I mean, what all is it used for? Our airport is what's called a general aviation airport. That means that we do not have any scheduled air carrier traffic airlines, and it's not a military field. It's General Aviation Airport. But General Aviation has several segments. It has a business area, and it has a pleasure area, and so forth, as you can imagine. Uh, There is a lot of recreational flying, but there's a remarkable amount of commercial activity at the airport, consisting of people who have businesses or have business in Paragu that fly here or that utilize aircraft to fly out of here and uh, and do business. Uh, there is a the hangar being built today, uh, which happens to be the 14th day of June, 2022, and currently there's a hangar under construction that's being built by the airport but it's being built for the use of uh, a private company here in town that uh, had another aircraft had a twin engine aircraft that could utilize our facilities but then they sold it and have bought a much bigger prop jet and uh, they needed a place to hangar it and want to use our fuel because it's cheaper really than some of the others and um, and so the airport worked out a deal whereby they would build a hangar and the company would lease it from them and buy our fuel, and it was an economically beneficial agreement on both sides. Mm. And so that's what's going on right now. And and there's probably a surprising amount of commercial activity. One sees the uh, helicopters taking off and landing at the, air, at the hospital, mm-hmm. but there are probably as many take off and land at the airport in Paragould as it is there. Really? An amazing number of people. They have a large... Like how many planes and helicopters are taking off for landing in our airport a week? I, I can't tell you that. Okay. I can't tell you what the operation numbers are. I'm sure they, they are known, but I don't, I okay. don't personally know them. Uh, but they're, you know, uh, uh, they sometimes fly uh, aircraft in here to take harvested organs mm. from 
Paragu to other places and to bring them here. And the aircraft that do that are, are large turboprop airplanes, and you don't land on a helicopter pad for that type of thing. And uh, a great number of times when they have serious automobile accidents and that sort of thing and the issues are very serious, uh, they'll take them direct to the Paragould Airport. The helicopter will actually meet them at the, at the, uh, meet the ambulance at the airport to transport them to Memphis and other places. All this talking about the airport getting you excited over there, Robert. Oh man, I'm I'm all about. That's your dream, right? I'm kind, of, I'm kind of like you, Donis. It's always been in my my blood. I went up to Oshkosh back when I was 14 or 15 years old. Flew out of Paragould with Bob White. Remember him? Sure, you know Bob. Okay, he was my uncle by marriage at the time. We call him Boarding House Bob. <laughs> He's got a boarding house now, doesn't he? <laughs> sure. Well, tell me about the um, – I'm interested. I didn't know about the highway. I brought that up a couple times now. I didn't know about that until um, someone was texting me right before you came on. How does someone – I guess like what I'm interested in the story, though, is like how does somebody like you help make change happen? Like, Well, there – Because that seems – like you said, it's a massive project. Like just most people who are listening to this in our city aren't – they're never going to be involved in some sort of a project like that. So, like, well, it's really very simple. Uh, in order to do that, uh, Tommy and I agreed that, and and Tommy was much better at this than I was. That in order for us to be successful in those efforts, what we had to do is we had to become politically involved. And so, we, along with a lot of other persons whom I won't name because they may not want their political involvements known. Uh, but we're leaders in the community, we kind of formed a little political action committee, lack of better words, and we supported candidates that we thought that would be beneficial for Paragould and be able to support the project that we felt like were needed here. And are these like, and, uh, you said political candidates, are these like uh, local political candidates? You mean like statewide? No, I'm talking about state, uh, regional and state. Is we that were heavily involved in in a great number of different campaigns, governor, gubernatorial campaigns, uh, we were involved in... Uh, hey, tell me about that. Like, how are you involved? I, I, I do know that, um, or it seems like, maybe I'm remembering this wrong, but that uh, the, that Bill Clinton and Tom Kirk, I guess, had they were there for, had a friendship or that they were involved somehow in, I, I guess, in his race. Oh, yeah. Okay. We were involved in that. And, so what does and that mean exactly when you're involved in that? Well, <laughs> like what, is what that we like? would do, there are two parts to that type of an operation. One of them is economic and one of them is, uh, is people. And what we, we being Tommy and various others, including myself, uh, would have a, uh, a, an, quote, event, close quote. Uh, that's a political term for a party, and and we would have a governor, gubernatorial candidate, sometimes a, a candidate for the House of Representatives, a congressional seat, sometimes senators, uh, uh, rarely local. We did not try to get involved in local political fights. Uh, in our opinion, that would detract from the key missions 
that we felt like we needed to be involved in. And so we tended to restrict our activities to those that involve uh, governor's races, uh, sometimes a Senate race, rarely, but sometimes uh, I, I'm talking about a state Senate race. Uh, most usually it was a, a House of Representative uh, position or a United States Senate position, something along that line. Are you looking for people who would who will funnel money to our part of the state? Well, that, like have an eye for what you have an not, eye for? Not, not really. That's too direct. It results in uh, encouragement for the for the legislature and the Congress to funnel money to us for the project. But people who will be interested in and supportive of the the projects that we felt like were necessary for us. Sure. Uh, for example, uh, Rodney Slater was the uh, uh, chairman of the transportation department. He was the head of transportation partner in Clinton. And uh, Rodney's a great guy, by the way. He's a lawyer. I don't know whether you knew that or not. But uh, anyhow, he uh, they had a project where they were trying to raise some bond, get authority to raise bond money for the construction of highways. And and uh, they were really needing some help in that respect. And, and so we jumped on the bandwagon with them. And Rodney came up here, and I never will forget him standing on the steps of the Green County Tech. By that point, uh, King's Highway four lane as far as Green County Tech and saying we're going to, if we can adopt this bond issue, what we're going to do is we will, we will, uh, we will build a four lane highway from where I'm standing right now to Miss Addie's store. And he used those terms. That day forward, I've seen him in Washington, D.C. and other places. He said, we built it at Miss Addie's, didn't we? Mm. <laughs> yeah, he did, Rodney. Mm. But anyhow, in order to gain support, well, they needed local support for that type of thing. Well, it's a quid pro quo thing whereby we help them out and then they help us out. Uh, and, it's and by we help not, them out, like we help them to get elected? Or like we help well, them. we try in some instances. We give assistance in election campaigns. In some instances, supported issues that they wanted. In some issues, would go to our representatives and senators and in the state position and say, hey, look, you know, this is what they're trying to do. We needed to get this done. You know, can't you see yourself fit to to support this particular legislation or whatever? And and that's how that's how it's done. Do you uh, think that's happening anymore, like with my generation? Because I don't hear about it, do I, you? I, I don't know that. I, I can't tell you that. I'm a little... I, I, I'm not able to answer that. I, I think, I don't think not. That. It's not being done in the same way that we did it. And people, I'm afraid, would assume that we did it so we would be able to feather our own nest economically. Yeah, it doesn't sound that way to me. And, and, and so, but we didn't. I don't know of a single person who was involved in that group of people that benefited one penny yeah, I, out, of, I, out of the things that we did, I've never personally. thought that. I've never thought that. In fact, when I was hearing your story, I my next question um, 
is like, why did you care enough to do that? Because I'm just thinking like how busy people are. And most, most people are like, they're not even thinking about the next generation or the future of the city. They're just trying to make enough money to pay the bills, to go on vacation, to whatever, pay off their house, raise their kids. They're not thinking about the city as a whole, but that's not true of, of you and your, I guess I would say your friends. Um, and I'm just curious, why is that? Why were you all so interested in helping this part of the world? Well, in long terms, uh, we were interested in trying to improve this community because we lived in it, and we wanted for our children and and our relatives and our friends to be able to prosper and enjoy what is available to us uh, that way. Mm. Uh, the, the thing that occurred to me while you were saying that and why is, in my opinion, there's a one-word answer, leadership. One of the things people don't realize about leadership is it's as much a responsibility for leaders leaders to develop their successors as it is to achieve the objectives they have available that they won't take care of immediately. And what you do is you try to develop ways to encourage people. You and and it, it it is work to the extent you've got to learn who the people are, got to see how they act, and the ones that you feel like that have the right attitude, that are honest and straightforward people, and have the right opinions of things in the framework of uh, for the good of community, uh, encourage them to become involved. Uh, I also. Uh, in saying that, let me explain to you. It's I'm not just saying it because. Uh, that's a thought. We actually acted on that. I was fortunately one of the members of the committee that that developed leadership paragould, and that was our idea behind it. Bill Fisher and hmm. and uh, and Joe Wessel and and oh, I can't remember who all of us were on that committee, but that was the whole idea. And if you look at what they're motto was or at the time was to build bench strength to be a what build bench strength and it has been Mm -hmm. a successful program if you go by and ask the people who are involved in our county and city government today you'd be amazed how many of them are graduates of the the leadership paragraph class Mm -hmm. how many of the aldermen and how many of the uh members of the uh, quorum court and so forth it's remarkable what has happened. Now, what they, I hope, are learning is once they step into these positions of leadership, one of the things they've got to do is to look around and try to recruit, find people who will follow them that will be have the same kinds of attitude that we'd like to have about the development of the community without the pure... Uh, mercenary and personal uh, gain that people think exists. You, I actually did not know that you and Bill Fisher and Joe Wessel had helped with development of leadership paragraph, which by the way, I'm ashamed to say I've never gone through, but every, it, every time it comes around, I'll get two or three people calling me and say, you got to do this because it's fantastic. I've never heard anybody go through it and say it was a waste of time. Everybody says it's amazing, but I'm curious 
I don't even know how to ask this next question. I'm going to give it my best. But um, when I think about you, Joe Wessel, Bill Fisher, Tom Kirk, who I um, know also uh, was someone who was huge in the development of our city. Like you guys are, and I know you would never say this about yourself, but you're kind of like uh, uh, giants, so to speak, as far as like empirical history and, and, and how you have been used to make our city better than, than what it was. And I know that you would never say that about yourself. This I'm, is just, I'm afraid you've misjudged. <laughs> yeah, that, I don't about think I me have. personally, and certainly yeah. not about Bill or Joe. Yeah, so yeah. I'm, I'm curious, though, like what did y'all's – relationship look like was that was that actually a friendship like were you guys the reason i'm even asking this is and and robert you might be able to help me vocalize kind of what i'm feeling in this moment or whatever else around this but i think like something that that i think we're getting better at like with the, the right leadership we have right now but it seems like what has been lost in uh my generation is one we've already hit on a little bit is truly focusing more on the whole than just the individual. So I think like part of my generation is more like, Hey, uh, the group, the city exists for me mm. or this church exists for me or this, whatever exists for me. And it doesn't seem like that was y'all's mentality. It was more like, no, I exist for the city. I exist for the group. So I feel like that's something that we've missed. I think we're getting a little bit better at, but another thing is friendship. Um, I've, I'm friends with Bill Fisher. So this is where I, this is where this is coming from, by the way. So Bill and I talk regularly just whenever I hear him talk, um, it just seems like relationships were a little bit maybe deeper back mm -hmm. then or there was more substance. I, I don't even know how I'm trying to frame it, but I'm just curious, what did that look like? Um, you, Joe, Tom, am I even seeing it like accurately? Were y'all we all close, not close? Were these guys all working together? I, I think we were close. I, I uh, certainly – how close to all those who you've mentioned, uh, heaven knows where we'd be as a community if it weren't for Bill and the others that you've mentioned. Uh, but in addition to that, uh, for many years, Bill and I would sit down together at least once a month at a meal, breakfast or lunch, and just talk, just visit. Mm -hmm. Just catch up with one another. Find out what's going on. Uh, I valued their opinion very highly. And and uh, the same thing with, yes, we were good personal friends in addition to being involved in the community and, and really enjoyed one another uh, uh, personally. Mm -hmm. uh, I can't imagine... Uh, not being able to, uh, to to call on them, or and and I know to a moral certainty that if something should happen to me or my family, unfortunately, uh, they would be the very first to be on the scene. Mm. Uh, so yes, to that extent, yes, it was personal, but it was a personal friendship and respect and camaraderie more than uh, uh, more than. Uh, they were more than fishing buddies. Yeah, and that's 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 the language I think I was just trying to put to what I was saying is yeah, there just seemed to be yeah, you are more than fishing buddies, and I'm wondering like, what do you think made that work? Like, what made them good friends? 
Like what? Well, first of all, it's their personality and their the persons that they were. That was who they were and are. I mean, uh, they're no different today. They're uh, like me, unfortunately, not getting long in the tooth and not able to stay as long and do as much as I, I'd like to do. Uh, and they would like to do, but uh, they are still the same people. It, it, it comes from identifying good people, good bedrock, good people. And, and, and I hope that we are still teaching leadership and that sort of thing in our schools. Uh, when I was growing up, I was very fortunate to be able to both participate in athletics and in band. And uh, the coaches and the directors and so forth were always talking about the older kids providing leadership to the younger mm. kids and emphasizing the need to provide mm. leadership in the school, not just for their activities, but otherwise. Whether that is still being done today, I don't know. Uh, I haven't been in a, yeah. a locker room or a concert hall in a long time. Yeah, I don't know either, but I know that Bill – is still doing that. Um, oh, yeah. You know, I mean, that's – Robert's heard me tell this story, but I was uh, – I had breakfast with Bill Fisher on Valentine's Day. Mm-hmm. And for those who don't know Bill Fisher, who's listening to this podcast, he retired, I guess, was a CEO of Paragold Light and Water. That was his position as a CEO <clears throat> president. It's one of the great number of commanding positions he held. Yeah, he was also yes, the – Yes, thank God he was, he was the chairman of the uh, – or actually chief executive officer of the Paragold yeah, he, lot more he took it over if I understood, and <clears throat> this is not from Bill, but whenever the uh, – we were not in the best financial shape, and I think he really helped us uh, tremendously in that area. But, of course, he was the chairman of the State Board of Education, I know, under Clinton and I believe under Huckabee. But uh, like you said, there's been several things he's done, probably things I don't even know about. But back to my story, I was with him on Valentine's Day. He had asked me to come over to his house to have breakfast that he cooked I arrived, and there's bacon, scrambled eggs, fruit. And, you know, his wife, is, is not, Ann's not doing great right oh, now. Her man. health's not great. But sitting there at the table, even though she couldn't get out of bed, was a bowl of fruit that he had had for her and a Valentine's Day card. Because mm-hmm. he said every Valentine's Day he's always given her a card. She wasn't able to join us for breakfast. But, of course, the whole conversation was about me, my family, how are we doing, all that kind of stuff. And it's just, I share that story to say, like, it's just, it's a testimony to what you're talking about of here's a man who's still doing what you've been talking about of it's, it's trying to pour into the next generation to raise up other leaders, to give a good example. Um, and so I just want to say what y'all have done is no small thing. And I know that y'all don't, none of y'all want credit for that. As soon as I try to bring that up to Bill, even he's always deflecting back, 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 back. I'm like, okay, but, I just want to say thank y'all for your work. Well, we owe so much to others. <laughs> Not so much what we do, but rather what the collective effort has been. And there's so much more to do. Uh, I hope the young people that may be unfortunate enough to be hearing me uh, understand that, that they need their things that need to be done and and. It really is it's a pleasure to do them. Sometimes it's painful, and sometimes you fail miserably, and we have. But 
it, it, when you're able to accomplish something, you look at it and say, well, that was a good thing. Mm-hmm. And, and, and you do like that. Yeah. What would you say to that point that you're most proud of? Again, not to say that you get the credit for anything, but what are you most proud of as you look back over your life and what you and your friends and, and the group you've been a part of have been able to accomplish? As far as I'm, making I'm not sure better. I could I'm not sure I could identify any single thing. Uh, I'm proud of the fact that we have grown in what appears to be in an appropriate way. Uh, I'm proud that our efforts are yielding fruit in the leadership side. I'm proud of the fact that the activities that we engaged in uh, are at least favorably viewed. <laughs> there might be a lot of people who would say, uh, uh, it was pretty, pretty uh, sordid type of activity. The, th- the things you've got to realize is that, is that uh, some of it, if it's taken in certain contexts, could, could look ugly. For example, we very commonly would say, okay, we need to raise 10, 10 grand, and uh, Tommy, you're going to be the bag man. What do you mean by that? All right. That meant that we would go around and each of us would pitch in $1,000 apiece, and that one of our group, in this particular instance, I use Tommy, because sure. I know he did do that, and of course, sure. Tommy's deceased now, and I can't libel him too much. Uh, <laughs> he can't deny it either. <laughs> but... Uh, we would say, okay, and we'd gather up this money, but we trusted him to take it to the political campaign that we that we were raising the money for and tell them that we needed to have something done that was the right thing. Not that he wanted to be appointed to this or somebody else appointed to that, but rather, hey, look, here's you some money. Now, if you get an opportunity and uh, – something comes up on this issue, we would like to be able to be heard about that, and we'd like for you to come and see us or mm-hmm. us come see you mm-hmm. about it. It's, it's and buying that, that would work. access. It, what you're doing is you're buying access, uh, and it, buying is a poor example, a uh, poor word to have to use, but it's exactly what you're doing. It's opening the door for you so that you can get in to talk to somebody about something. And it, as long as it's the things that they're wanting to talk about are beneficial to the community, it's not a bad thing. Yeah, right. If it's something about this guy, whoever the bag man is, getting appointed to be the chairman of the banking committee or or, or getting a charter through for a bank or something like that, that would be the wrong thing. Mm-hmm. And, and and it never was with the people that I was fortunate enough to be involved with. And we would raise money for that. We would throw parties, events they're called, for people and uh, shake hands with them and take them around and introduce them to their friends and, and take them up to the courthouse and introduce them to the courthouse people and all that sort of stuff. But that wasn't being done right. in order to... Uh, uh, put a feather in our nest, it was being done in order to, to uh, gain access so we could call somebody and they wouldn't ignore us. Yeah. Yep. And 
and and and and there were, we weren't we aren't the only guys that played that game either. Of course, but uh, or have played the game, and most of them a lot more successfully than we did. But that was the purpose of it, and if you don't go at it with that kind of purpose, well, then it becomes a sordid thing. Yeah. Oh, the image I get in my head is, I mean, it's no different than if my child needs medical attention and I'm going to pay the money in order to get access to the doctor. It's like, in many ways, it seems kind of like that's somewhat of what you did. If you look at Paragold as the child that you're trying to develop, that you're trying to raise up is you're saying, okay, I've got to get access and money is one of the ways that I do that in order to bring the help or the relief or the attention that we need to this issue. You... Let me tell you how this works. You will recall the you you said something about the highway four four twelve mm-hmm. bridge across St. Francis River. And Marion Barry uh had decided to run for Congress. And uh, as a matter of fact, one of the places he made his announcement about running for Congress was in Tommy Kirk's showroom out at the, what was then the uh John Deere place. It is now too, but it's been different places in that time. In any event, um, uh, Marion was running, and uh, and we just liked him. I don't know why we just did took to him. From that point on, we tried to support Marion, and the reason we did so because Marion came from a farming community. He was very very well educated at a pharmacy degree. And, and all that university, but he seemed to identify with us and what we're trying to do and uh, go at things in the right way as best we could tell. Well, we supported him on a number of occasions. Uh, at the same time, there was a uh, representative from over in Missouri, Dunklin County and that area, that uh, was a, a Republican. And uh, we were wanting to try to get the 412 bridge built. A, a relationship was developed. That congressman passed. His wife was elected to his seat, and she served over in that district. And, uh, and a uh, friendship developed between Marion and this lady, and they both sat on the transportation committee of the, of the, uh, of the House. And uh, we were trying to get things done about the 412 bridge, and we just and 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 the reason behind that you've got to understand the most expensive piece of highway that you ever build is a bridge. And the thing that was holding us up and getting Highway 412 four laned over this way was to get the bridge built for it to go through. <coughs> And it was a very expensive project and involved two states. Half of that bridge is in Missouri and half in Arkansas, so you have to have the cooperation of both state commissions. <clears throat> in any event, what happened was uh, we got all the stars in the line, we thought, pretty well, and uh, a meeting was arranged in Kennett between the commissioner in Kennett, the lawyer in Kennett, whom I knew, and uh, representatives from Paragould, which, as it turned out, to be Tommy and me, Tommy Kirk and me. And so we went to this meeting, 
and had this big sit down. And it was as simple and honest, as straightforward to me as you can imagine. We sat down and said, here, here's what our plan is. Here's what we need to get done. As a result of our very cordial meeting and wasn't terribly long, everybody knew where we were going and what we were wanting to do, just everybody deciding that's what we are going to do and how we are going to go about it and being sure that everybody was in the same uh, pew mm. and sing from the same hymnal. <laughs> and and uh, and so that's exactly what happened. It was, it was, I, I played a very minor role in it. I was just there, but uh, but it was it, it went wonderfully well. And then it seemed like just all of a sudden a domino started to fall, and we got the bridge. And the bridge was built a long time, but there's anything four lane near it. Mm. What's crazy is yeah, I've gone over that bridge so many times. <laughs> And I just assumed that uh, at some point somebody said, well, there needs to be a bridge there. And then the next week oh, they built it. <laughs> that's, uh, building, building bridges is a real deal now. It's, it's difficult it and expensive. Like it. it sounds like yeah. it. Well, here's the way I'd love to end on us is um, the, the way we do every podcast episode is where I just end the list of rapid fire questions. And um, if you've ever listened, you know, these, these are pretty simple uh, no prep needed to answer these. So, um, are you ready? Six rapid fire questions coming your way. Number one: What is either the last show you watched or book you read, or a magazine? Oh well, magazines. I, I read four or five uh, flying magazines and uh, deals a month. Uh, I I can't remember the name of it. You caught me in a senior moment. <laughs> Uh, well, I, I just finished it within the last uh, week, week and a half, and I can't. Well, if you think about it, it before we <laughs> end, just throw it out there. Oh, so if you're like me, usually, my brain will start working. Yeah, usually I have to stop thinking about something for it to come to me. Uh, what is your favorite band or maybe favorite song or just favorite genre of music? By and large, I like classical music. Okay. And uh, I have quite a number of classical records. I enjoy that. Um, do you listen to them when you're tinkering on your planes out there? What do you listen to or anything? Rarely. Really? Rarely. Uh, I do know that most of these uh, mechanic shops, airplane shops, have some radio blaring with some kind of stuff in it. But I, like I, choose, silence. I, I, I don't choose to do that. You like the quiet? Well... Except for my cussing. <laughs> <laughs> you haven't cussed once on this podcast. That's unusual. <laughs> well, uh, th- third question. What is your favorite meal? Your favorite meal? Mm, I like everything so well. I can't tell you. I love to have a catfish dinner. I love mm-hmm. a good steak. So I don't know how I would call that. Who's got the best catfish around here? Oh, I find good catfish in a lot of places. Uh, I I tell a lot of my friends coming up this way, you know, it doesn't matter where you stop. Any beer joint, any restaurant, any service station, anything like that. If they're they will if they're cooking food, they'll have barbecue and catfish, and they'll both be excellent. You yeah. can find I've not found any bad anywhere. Uh, Oinkies is a place that I. I have gotten catfish recently. It was excellent. Okay. Uh, I have gotten some at uh, 
I think it's called the Barbecue Shack, yeah, mm-hmm. which is on the other side of the by the overpass over the railroad track from where I live. Uh, I can't remember. Uh, A lot of people seen the prices of Seventh Street Market. I'm not. I have had catfish there. I, I haven't had in a long time, but yes, they used the barbecue to barns got some great. Yeah, barbecue catfish. barns, excellent catfish. <coughs> you can't find bad catfish, I don't think. It's a good politically correct answer. I like that. I like all fried catfish. <laughs> uh, all right, question number four. What is on your nightstand right now? Well, right now, there's only thing that's on there is a, is a clock radio on the nightstand. Beside my uh, recliner in my den is uh, <coughs> Flying Magazine uh, along with the uh, <clears throat> uh, history on uh, Teddy Roosevelt, mm. and uh, I read a lot of history. Yeah, I'm a big fan of history myself. Um, what is an ordinary moment in your life that brings you great joy? Uh, a great number of them do. Uh, being able to sit down and visit with my daughter, which I do every Friday afternoon at 4.30 on the telephone, Mm. Brings me great joy. Getting in an airplane and starting and taking off some nice, cool, pleasant morning gives me great joy. Mm. Um, sometimes seeing my wife smile mm. gives me great joy. Um, I, 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 there are a number of little snippet things. I, I don't know any single thing that routinely happens gives me great joy that is memorable. Mm. That's good. That's good. Those are, those are ordinary things that bring you a lot of joy. I bet they're ordinary things that bring you a lot of joy too. I like yeah. every one of those things. Yeah. <laughs> uh, see, my, I told my wife the other day, I said, hearing you laugh is literally one of my favorite things in the world. Mm-hmm. The only of those three you don't have, yes, the plane, man. You well, got to make it happen hey, I, in I, your I, spare time. I, <laughs> I'd love to do it myself. I still love riding. You know, honest. If you want an excuse to go flying, oh, I don't call, need any excuse. Call me out. <laughs> <laughs> you catch uh, me out there. You're welcome to go. All right. Last question. What is one thing in your life that you're deeply grateful for right now? Health. Had one of the most, and this is something you may very well want to call. Other people might want not want to listen to. But I had a man call me. Yesterday, uh, out of the blue, a fellow that I judge airplanes with up at Oshkosh and uh, had a number of years, and he'd been battling cancer badly. And uh, uh, he called me, and he's he, very for, he was very weak voice and could barely speak. His wife was having to help him with the talking. And he said he just wanted to call me and tell me goodbye. Oh, mm. that was uh, something. But by contrast, here I am probably a couple years older than he is, and I'm in great health. I'm able to do things I want to do. Can't do it as long or as well, but I can do almost anything I could always do. How old are you now? And I'm 79. What? This is uh, not a rapid-fire question, but it's just thought of it. I know that you've lost a few friends along the way. I'm sure when you're 79 years old, and here's this guy calling you. 
how does that change your perspective? Is it what you're talking about where you're just, you become more grateful for the life that you now have, including just the health and the ordinary things as you get older and you watch friends pass away that you remember one time whenever they were young, vibrant? Well, I, to me, I, of course, as I have said, it, it brought clearly to mind uh, uh, that I was grateful for my my health. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I'm not sure that really... In, in all honesty, is 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 uh, so impressive. Uh, you've got to understand, or at least I believe you should understand. When you begin begin to get my age and Bill Fisher's age and others, that we're at the age where we start losing friends and family members, and and if you don't understand that that's a part of the life cycle, well then you just really don't have a clear understanding of what's going on. Mm-hmm. Uh, we uh, uh, go through cycles in life. There are times when you're getting out of school, and then you have all the hoorah, and then uh, you get married, or you finish school, and then you get married, and then you have kids. All right, then your kids get in school, and you, all those activities are involved. And then they get out of school, and they start developing their families. And, and somewhere along there, you lose your family, lose your parents. And maybe a sibling or two, and and those are life cycle things that happen to you along, and 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 I'm approaching the age where I'm getting to the point where lots of my friends are passing, and they will continue to, and in a greater rate. But it, I'm not going to just be able to bury my head in the sand and throw, you know, uh, sackcloth and ashes and all that sort of thing and get down in the mouth about it because that is just part of the cycle of life in my view mm-hmm. and uh, and it just goes with uh, with living so live that's good well that's a great place to end i really want to thank you for coming on here <laughs> i know that it's not always natural or easy for some people to come on and talk about their story and share and try to recall all these events but uh i really am glad uh mr hamilton that i got a chance to meet you Thanks again for all of your work, and and hopefully we get to connect again in the future. Well, I hope so, too, and I hope next time you address me, you call me Donis. That's right. I'll remember that. Mr. Hampton was my daddy. That's right. (laughs) I'll remember Donis. So thanks again for having us on here and for not having to uh, make us use the explicit language uh, symbol on the podcast episode. And that was Donis Hamilton. Thanks, Donis. Thanks, Donis. First time I've met him. You guys go way back though, right? Yeah, I mean, since I was literally a little kid, he, they, he had a connection with uh, an old lifelong friend of mine. Uh, so that's how I've known him for a long, long time. Does he? Do you? When's it, is, see, I'm trying to think. Did you? You flown with him before? Or no, I have flown with him, and I've definitely spent some time out at the airport. He, I wish you to talk some more about this, but maybe next time we maybe we have him on again just to talk about airplanes. But he. Uh, he built a hangar out there at the airport, and he, so he personally owns, I think it's actually his, but he has three antique airplanes. They are so cool. Little really? Tail dragger airplanes. Yeah, one of them's like this polished chrome-looking thing. It's. I wish I knew what, what model it was, but it's really, really cool. Nice. Yeah, he's a huge enthusiast. He's done more than he gave himself credit for. He's done a lot for the airport out there. 
That's a problem with some of the uh, older generation, man. You, you, you know, they've done all these great things, and you try to get them talking, and they just don't want to brag on themselves. Yeah, they're just man. like, oh, you know, oh, anybody shucks. could do yeah. it. Yeah. <laughs> just like, no, yeah, no, I don't think so. Nope. It's pretty incredible. Yep. Uh, well, Donna, thanks so much for making uh, time to be here. And if you're still listening, thanks so much for tuning in. Uh, we truly, uh, we do what we do for you. And so, if you can, be sure and give us a five star rating on iTunes. That just helps people to. Find us more quickly and learn about the incredible people living here. Um, also, you can check us out. We're on Instagram. Uh, we're on Facebook primarily. Um, and so you can find us on there. Go back, listen to lots of other episodes because there are a lot of them out there released around one a week. And so um, as always, truly, we do appreciate you tuning in. Until next time.